Blog Talk Radio. Coming to you since 1997 on KKUP Radio with over 250 guests and still going strong in their 12th year of weekly broadcasting, the International Taz and Paula Show brings to you expansive, engaging, and groundbreaking intensity on radio and now on the Internet airwaves today. Listen live every Thursday or visit Embracing Mother Earth's archives, exclusive articles, ask questions, and receive actual answers from guests anytime at TazAndPaulaShow.com. Taz and Paula's special guests are experts coming from all walks of life, energizing our lives with a passion that inspires and teaches us with each of their compelling personal life journeys, with roots from ancient wisdom and bridging it with modern science. We hope today's show touches the wisdom of your heart. And now, Taz and Paula. Well, good afternoon out there, everyone. We're talking today with our guest, Heather White, regarding a trailer that appeared early this spring regarding who pays the price. And more than 300 news articles have been written on the topics reviewed in the YouTube film, which has more than 1 million views. Wow, that's great for YouTube. I can't believe it. This, this short documentary reviews the hazards of the electronics industry in China, profiling workers poisoned by chemicals and their struggle for compensation. Thousands of young people in China enter export factories to make the West's favorite electronic gadgets iPads, iPhones, only to say a few of the things that they're making, and they have contracted occupational diseases, or worse, leukemia, by the age of 25. Heather's film was cited in the front page of features on Upworthy Huffington Post and The Nation. Heather White's investigation work on transparency into global supply chains has led to improved industry standards in social auditing and verification practices. You are now listening to the Taz and Paula Show, and I'm Paula. And I'm Taz. Miss White holds a BA in the East Asian Studies and an MS in the International Political Economy from Harvard College and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, respectively. She has done extensive research on outsourcing practice, labor issues, and human rights standards, and has won awards from Scientific American Magazine as one of the Scientific American 50, and is a recipient of the Social Capitalist Award from Fast Company Magazine. Heather White's perspectives on Apple Computers' labor challenges in its Chinese factories have previously appeared in the U.S. and European media, including the New York Times, Bloomberg, CNN, the Philadelphia Inquirer, NPR, and European newspapers. For the last three years, Heather White was a network fellow at Harvard University's Edmund Safra Center for Ethics. Paula, we are so fortunate to have someone like Heather taking a stand and sharing new ways to unleash better ways of supporting humanity. Uh, this hour is going to be really awesome. 
Well, Heather White, we are definitely looking forward to your journey, you delivering your journey with us. It's so outstanding, and it's incredible. We feel honored to have you with us today. Oh, thank you very much. Well, you certainly are streamlining uh, everything here. <laughs> how how did this journey begin for you, Heather? And was there any one thing that propelled you into supporting humanity the way that you do? I guess for this project, the catalyst was in about uh, 1999 when I read an article in a Chinese newspaper that said clinics had been established by the government to take care of all the workers who were becoming paralyzed and falling into comas from making products for export. And a lot of the uh, workers were teenagers, and they had pictures and I was just horrified to read that kids were in comas for months at a time and were losing uh, use of their arms and legs. And in that article, they said a lot of the uh, workers had been working in printing factories, making books uh, for the U.S. market, among other places. And I decided when I headed over there in 2012 that I was going to check out these clinics to see who was in there and whether they were young workers, whether they were still people who were uh, involved in the printing industry or, in fact, were they from other sectors? Uh, I was interested particularly in what was going on in the electronics sector because we'd already been hearing for the last couple of years of suicides in the iPhone factories and workers that had been paralyzed and had written Steve Jobs, the CEO of Apple, before he passed away asking for help because their medical expenses hadn't been paid and they'd been in the hospital for over a year. And so I wanted to see what was happening, basically, uh, in the hospitals. And when I got to China, just started walking through hospital wards and looking for workers to interview, and it led to discovering that there's this huge situation in the cell phone factories with teenagers who are exposed to very toxic chemicals unnecessarily. These are not chemicals that need to be used in the production. And I decided uh, with my colleague that we would make a feature-length documentary film and share it with the world so that people could start putting pressure on companies and demand higher standards. Wow. Was it easy to get the workers to uh, talk to you and tell you their story? It actually was pretty easy. I know a lot of people think that because China's a communist country that um, people would be too afraid to talk and uh, share the information. But I think that they want to tell the world. They want people to know what's happening. Uh, they want people to help. At the same time that they're sick, that they're living in the hospital for months on end, they're also fighting the factories for compensation because usually the factories refuse to pay their medical bills even though they got poisoned at the job or they lost a hand. The factories often do whatever they can to delay and stall having to actually pay money out of pocket for their treatment and for their rehabilitation. And so they're often frustrated and feeling like, you know, there's a tremendous injustice that's going on and they want help. And so I would say 90% of the people that we talked to were willing to tell their stories. In a couple of cases, people said they weren't comfortable sharing the name of the factory because they were in a dispute with the factory and they didn't want things to maybe go wrong as a result. But 
in general, pretty much everybody was um, willing to share their story, and um, you know, they would like people around the world to know what's happening. They feel, you know, they feel uh, somewhat uh, vulnerable. Oh, is the Chinese gov- is the Chinese government backing them or helping or supporting them in any way? No, generally not. Uh, I mean, you could say that if they're in a public hospital, that that's the Chinese government providing support because they control the hospitals. But in general, they don't have avenues that they can pursue for justice or for a fair hearing of their case against the factory. In many cases, the workers have said they feel like the government authorities, the judges, the courts are in support of the factories more than they are of the workers. And I think that from what we've heard from lawyers as well who handle cases that workers are bringing against the factories, that the government's not really very supportive of these cases. They're more um, supportive of foreign investment. They want foreign brands to come in and continue to make products there. They want more and more American consumers to be buying things made in China. So they don't want stories about young people getting injured and dying from diseases that they contract in factories. They don't really want those stories getting out. And there just aren't that many protections. It's a communist country, so the state basically can control you know, pretty much anything it wants to. What makes them use the chemical benzene over something else? Um, I mean, it, is it more effective when cleaning things off, or what makes them use this chemical? Is there something else that can be used um, oh. that will be just as you know efficient? Absolutely. Benzene is very cheap to obtain in China, so that's why they use it. It's the cheapest of the solvents that accomplish what they're looking for, which basically is just to wipe down the screens, the housings of the cell phones, the plastic that's been molded and is moving to the next stage of assembly. They need to wipe everything down so that there's no remnants of little bits of dust or plastic or anything that might interfere with the next stage of production. And so uh, they choose to use benzene that they mix with a lot of other things. But the industrialized countries like the U.S., Canada, Europe, they've already banned benzene for use in a factory environment as a solvent for decades. But China refuses to sign the benzene convention that's part of the International Labor Organization. And so factories are allowed to use it. And as a result... These kids are being exposed needlessly to the most toxic kind of chemical that one could ever find in an uh, industrial environment for this type of low-skill, low-wage assembly work. There's just no reason for it to be used by the factories other than the price. Well, my husband is a painting contractor, and he said that um, up until a few years ago, the painters were using it to make the paint to clean things to make the paint dry faster and um the older painters are coming down with all these diseases also so i mean they finally banned it yes. so it's a, really a toxic chemical so, i um, i think i think i also have smelled some of this in sporting goods and things like that too and um, so it's it's around in many different 
items. I mean, it's just not the iPads and the iPhones. Oh, absolutely not. It's in everything. I interviewed a woman who had um, contracted benzene poisoning making hairbrushes for export. So imagine that we're brushing our hair now with a hairbrush that has been coated in benzene before it got shipped to the U.S. And while it was in the shipping containers, those shipping containers have also been poisoning workers in China. There's a factory that has about 50 people who filed compensation cases against uh, their their employer because they've contracted leukemia and other blood diseases, making the shipping containers that all our stuff comes in. So we're just being surrounded by benzene from China. It's in shoes. I've interviewed people who are dying of leukemia. One of the women in our film already passed away. Um, in February from benzene poisoning, making shoes for a lot of the major U.S. footwear importers. We're putting our feet on, you know, bare feet and sandals and flip-flops. We're putting them right on um, leather and plastics that have also been soaked in benzene before they're shipped. So, yes, benzene is all around, and we really need to start putting pressure on the the brands that are bringing these products in to, to ban it in production. So should the consumer just tell the uh, different brands that we're not going to buy this, or how can the consumer voice their opinions against this? Well, all the brands now have websites with 800 numbers and addresses and ways that you can interact with them because they've created social responsibility departments, and they pay attention now when they hear from consumers about issues, especially things that have to do with chemicals and health and safety of consumers. They're a little bit less concerned about what's going on in the workplace overseas and in places like China because they don't own the factories most of the time. But if consumers say, I have concerns about benzene, I've seen this film, I've done a little research, I want to make sure that you've banned benzene in your supply chain or you've banned it in your code of conduct, I really do believe the companies will act. Apple already banned benzene and and hexane as a result of the pressure Bring brought as a result of our film. Hmm. Wow, that's good. Well, Apple's been the the prime um, name out there that's you know that people were like charging this against. But there's a lot of other brands like you're talking about shoes and and brushes and 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 other companies that are doing electronics. Is that correct? Yes. The other brands are also in those same factories because they share factories. The companies have decided they don't want to own their own factories, and so they're basically subcontracting with many different manufacturers over there. There's literally hundreds of factories that are producing for our largest electronics brands. And we came upon Microsoft, Dell, Nokia, Samsung, LG. But with the Korean brands, I'd like to point out that they're not producing in China to the same extent that the American brands are because they already have their own factories in Korea. And Korea is a democracy. They have a woman president. They have freedom of the press. They allow trade unions. A lot of their factories are unionized. There are several compensation cases and lawsuits that have been brought by families in Korea where their family members who were workers passed away from benzene poisoning and other um, chemicals but they're allowed to bring those cases, and they can be covered by the media, and there's government funds. But that's not the case in China, because China 
is a communist country, and the party basically controls everything still. So the workers don't have nearly the same kind of rights that they have in Korea. Now, when you when you started take you know when you came up with the idea to uh, create a film, how how many hours of film do you have? We have about 120 hours of footage now. So you have to decide where to cut it and what parts to use, it sounds like. Yes, yes, that's going to be a very enjoyable and interesting project over the coming months. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So how long have you been working on this film? Uh, the trailer's out, and it's, you know, like it has, um, what, 100,000 hits? Is that what it... Yeah. Uh, 1.1 million hits now. One. I'm sorry, 1 million hits. And... Um, Wow, I mean, how how long has this been out? And um, tell us more. <laughs> well, the trailer was released in April, and at the same time there were a couple of organizations that decided they would start to put pressure on the electronics brands to become aware of this problem and start to... Uh, ban and restrict the chemical uses in the factories around the world. So a group called Green America and another group called China Labor Watch on the Internet started raising awareness and putting pressure and sending petitions and writing letters. And as a result, it really started to gain some traction. And then journalists from magazines and newspapers worldwide started contacting us for interviews. And I gave a lot of interviews in May and June, and the views of the trailer kept going up, up, up. And now we're at uh, over 1.1 million. So people have really, wow. yeah, really engaged with the topic, and everybody owns a cell phone. So, you know, a lot of people are really concerned. <laughs> yeah, because you put that to your head. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, but for hours well, a day you... in some cases. Were you totally shocked on on the, all the feedback and uh, from your just your uh, trailer that you that was out there? Well, I wasn't that shocked, but I was very gratified because it takes a lot of effort to get the link to the trailer seen by millions of people and then to persuade them to click on it and actually watch the video. So I had a lot of people helping me. This is not just a campaign of one person, but I'm working with a lot of volunteers and interns and people around the country who are just so concerned about the issue and they want it to change and they want the factories and the brands to be a lot more accountable on the health and safety issues around this whole cell phone issue and with the iPads and you know all the different tablets and gadgets that we're using these need to be safe and you know our children are even playing with them now at younger and younger ages and so there are a lot of people and organizations that have taken this up as an issue and sharing it, you know, around their networks and with their friends and that sort of thing. So I was able to get the word out there initially, but then it's really been carried forward by a lot of other people. When I appeared on an NPR radio interview last month, we got 150,000 views to the trailer in just two days. Oh, wow. Huh. Well, you know, when I first... Uh looked at your trailer, I was more concerned for the workers in China. I didn't even think about us using the product. I mean, it didn't even cross my mind until after uh, I read the media kit that 
was sent to us and everything. I thought, whoa, I wonder how people, how many people are aware of this. Yeah. There's yeah. not much awareness about the chemicals that are involved in production of a lot of things that we use every day and hold to our heads and put our skin on and are wearing, et cetera. Yeah, we need to be a lot more aware. And one of the things that we're starting to do is look for studies and articles that have been written about the risk to consumers from benzene and N-hexane and the other chemicals being used in the electronics assembly. You know, what's really surprising to me is that the the smell that is on the, you know, the sporting um, clothes and, and shoes and things like that, it doesn't go away. So it must be embed itself into the plastic or into the into the threads. It doesn't really... Uh, eliminate very easily. No, I've just taken to throwing things away if if it continues to smell after I buy it or if I think the paint smell is too strong on something, I just won't even bring it home anymore because now that I know that some of the people in our film actually got poisoned from the paint alone, one guy has been living in the hospital for five years who we interviewed oh. that uh, didn't even handle benzene or toxic chemicals in the workstation where he was located, but he was within smelling distance of the painting department. And he got his blood disease, which is called leukopenia, which is not leukemia, but it's another type of blood disease, um, just from smelling the paint that had benzene in it. Yeah. I mean, just like I'm shocked. And since you brought it up, I'm thinking, oh, I didn't realize what was in there. (laughs) And to make it smell like that, I'm thinking, wait, this is amazing. Yeah, so we need to be a lot more careful. Yeah, we should get. Yeah. Is there a list? Is there a list somewhere of um, products that may have benzene in it? I mean, like a resource that people could go to and say, uh, "What I have is, you know, do we have a list of products that we can go to?" Um, it would be very nice if we had that, but one of the problems is is that factories don't want to admit that they're using benzene. One of the experts in our film a professor who's writing a book about Foxconn, which is one of the largest suppliers of cell phones in China with over a million workers. He said that you can't get a factory manager in the Pearl River Delta area, which is where most of the electronics are produced. You won't be able to get a factory manager to even admit that he's using benzene in the factory because everybody knows how dangerous it is. And the um, containers that the workers are usually using have no labeling, no information on them. They're mixed up in some other part of the factory and then delivered to the assembly line for cleaning. And so people don't really know how much they're using, what they're using. They know that benzene is the most dangerous. And they ask and they're told, oh, no, 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 uh, we're not using benzene. So that's one of the challenges. It's not required to be labeled, which think should change. U.S. Customs should be doing a lot more oversight on the toxicity levels of what's coming into the country, but they only inspect less than 2% of all shipments that come in, so you can just imagine how little that is. Yeah, I know, because if we put pressure on them from this end, uh, they would possibly uh, stop using it, because, you know, that would be money and they're losing, so if we could put pressure from this end... Hmm. Yes. Is there consumers. is there an email address that people can actually email you and give you information or or um some area where they can go to 
discuss this? Oh, sure. Well, I have a very active Facebook page. Who pays the price, the human cost of electronics? So if they go to facebook.com, the human cost, they'll find it. Oh, and they can send me yeah, they can send me a message there. They can um ask for more information. They can go to our website which is whopaysfilm.org. We also have the trailer up on YouTube at Who Pays Film. So if you just go to youtube.com and type in Who Pays Film, you'll be able to watch the 10-minute trailer. Well, we put it up on our Facebook, and uh, we'll, we'll be putting it up for a second time so people can actually watch it from our Facebook. But um, it's an incredible trailer. How old are the... Or I was going to say, how young do they start working in the factories? The workers that we interviewed, the youngest one said he was 14 when he started working in the factory. And there was also a girl in our film who said she started working at 14. And they do that to support the family? Yes, in part to support their families. They're not going to be looked to by their parents to provide all of the support for the family, but they want to help their parents. Most of them come from the countryside hundreds of miles away, and they want to help the family who are still farmers and working really hard at uh, manual labor, possibly in the rural areas. And So they want to come to the city, see what it's like to be in an urban area, check it out. They have a sense of excitement. They're enthusiastic about earning their own money. In some cases, this is the first time they've ever been away from home. And so it's um, quite a wake-up call when they go into these factories that might have 200,000 or 300,000 workers and living oh, in these giant... Shocks. Yeah, it is a big culture shock. And how many hours... I mean, do, how much time do they get off a week? It sounds like they work, like, six days a week, or how many hours a day do they work, and how many... Most workers report that they're getting one day a month off, which is a violation of Chinese labor laws. Wow. And it is a violation of the code of conduct of every electronics brand that is buying products in China. But people look the other way. They don't enforce the law. So even though it's written on a nice piece of paper, the reality is still that workers are getting one day off a month in many cases. Even the teenagers, which again is a violation of the laws protecting juvenile workers on top of the labor law as well. Well, um, so I know that you've been talking to some of the um, large companies. Who, out of all the large companies, really um, came forth and the most to support what you're working towards? So far, Apple has been the most responsive. They've sent several letters. They've announced that they're banning benzene and n-hexane in the final assembly, which will affect about one-third of their workforce, one of the groups calculated in China. But that's um, still a lot of people, and it's a good start. I think that the best outcome would be for Apple and the other major cell phone brands to ban benzene in all stages of assembly and just prohibit it to be used in production throughout their supply chain. 
But we're not there yet, and that's the role for consumers, for consumers to put pressure on the brands and to email them and call their 800 numbers and say, we want benzene out of the products. We have concerns about health issues, and we don't want the workers to continue to be poisoned. Yeah, from the very beginning to the very end. It sounds like they're just concerned at the very end. Yes, well, that's where they have most control because the reality is is that with these extensive subcontracting networks and webs of smaller and smaller workshops, maybe just making one component or one part of a product, they lose control as more and more factories get involved in these massive networks of hundreds of suppliers that are serving a huge global company like an Apple or a Nokia. Sometimes they don't even know about these factories. Are these products by any chance in uh, cookingware at all? I don't know. I haven't been researching the cookware sector at this point. We did do some interviews with some people who'd been seriously injured making dinnerware, you know, like the plates and the bowls and the mugs and all of that stuff that uh, we see from China at the department stores and in the retailers, but I didn't hear anything about um, what's involved in uh, the cookware production. I think that's a project for another time, (laughs) maybe after this film is done. Uh, You have have too many things going on as it is. (laughs) Yeah. Now, how about India? Are they better than China or about the same? Because I've heard some terrible stories coming out of India. I didn't do any research on cell phones in India for this project. I've just focused on China. That's where the majority of the production is at this point. And there is some coverage on the Internet of issues in factories in India that are producing cell phones, but I haven't really been able to find very much out about this issue because this issue that's covered in my film, it's hidden People don't know about it. It hasn't been widely reported on. It hasn't been discussed. This is, you know, an expose that my colleague and I uh, decided that we wanted to share with the world because this is a hidden problem that the factories and the companies want to sweep under the rug. And, in fact, it's important for consumers to know what's going on. Well, I, when you were in going through university, college and university, I bet you wouldn't ever have thought, in a million years, you'd be involved in anything like this. <laughs> I actually didn't, but I was a Chinese major in college, so I've been studying oh. China, and I was very interested in factories and the Chinese Revolution and modern Chinese history. So I actually have been studying this topic at all different levels for many years, and I learned Chinese when I was in college and lived in Asia. So um, it's basically more of a situation of I've been preparing myself for this project for the past 20 years. That probably makes it much more easier for you to interview the the workers and create profiles because you could speak Chinese and you know about their history. That's probably a big plus. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't have done it otherwise. It's very important if you're trying to do this type of work to be able to communicate with people directly because if you're relying on translation... So much is going to get lost. Even if you've got a good translator, there's just no way that you can really connect with people and be able to pursue the kind of questions and 
your areas of interest as thoroughly as if you're able to speak with them directly, and especially with people who are dealing with, you know, life-threatening illnesses and very serious injuries. Um, you know, they're very uh, fragile, and it's important to be able to connect with them one-on-one and really to be able to share and give them, you know, your own words from your own heart, you know, the moral support and the concern and and the care that you, you know, feel that they are entitled to. Hmm. Uh, Was there tears on either side? (laughs) Constantly. (laughs) There have been a lot of tears in this project, believe me. Heather, when when you began this project, were there any... Um, unexpected things that came up that you didn't anticipate, maybe surprises or or things that you just really never expected to experience when doing this project? Well, the most recent surprise, and it's been 18 months of a lot of surprises, because every time you meet a teenager who's been poisoned in a factory, that's just so unexpected and it's just not right. It's not something that you know you ever really get used to. But uh, more recently this summer, we decided we would look specifically for workers who had been poisoned by benzene who were making Apple products at Foxconn because we didn't start this project and have not focused directly on Apple because I know that there's so many different cell phone companies producing in China, sharing the same factories. But over and over again, the workers that we interviewed all had some connection back to Apple, either making accessories for them, working directly on the iPhones, working on the iPads. So this trip that I made to China over the summer, we decided to look specifically for workers who'd been poisoned by benzene at Foxconn, which is Apple's main supplier. And within 10 days, we had 13 workers who had cases of benzene, we're dealing with leukemia, and some of them have already died. Oh, so no, was, it sounds like there's no recovery rate. I mean, once you have leukemia. There's not a very good recovery rate in China. The percentage of people we've spoken to who have um, a leukemia that's gone into remission is really small. We've only actually interviewed one person whose doctors have said they think she has a good chance of surviving over the next 10 years. But I think I think chemotherapy is part of the the protocol. Is that right? Yes, but as I said, the workers are often in a dispute with the factory about who's going to pay for the medical treatment. And yeah. what the factories are hoping is that they're going to die before they're you know, forced by a legal judgment to have to pay. And so the workers are often paying for the chemo out of pocket. You can just imagine what that must cost for somebody who's just a 20-year-old person earning at the bottom of the wage scale in a factory, now expected to pay for their own chemotherapy. Uh, the factories are being very difficult in terms of um, their willingness to come forward and pay the expenses. And unless there's some kind of a legal judgment, a diagnosis that proves the workers were poisoned in the factory, they often have to wind their case through the courts before the factory pays a penny. And in some cases, they don't survive long enough. So it's really a game that the that the factories are are gambling on winning, and in many cases they have. 
What do the, and I, I imagine the families probably gather together and gather their money together to help one individual in the family. I mean, that's about the only way they could do it, I would think. Yes. Yeah, so then the families are teetering on the brink of bankruptcy themselves because these are farm families from the countryside who have not socked away a lot of money. They don't have savings. They were relying on the income from the child who was sending some of their salary back every month back to the family if they had enough left over. But a lot of times the workers aren't even getting paid their rightful wages anyway, so what they thought they would have left over at the end of the month they didn't even get. Well, because they have to pay for a board and room, (laughs) probably, and they take that out. Yeah, there's just a lot of chargebacks. Often the factory will charge the workers if they're late. You know, if they're five minutes late, they get docked a half a day's pay, that kind of thing. I ran a nonprofit for several years where we documented all the different kinds of tricks that the factories would play on workers to try to keep as large a percentage of their paycheck as possible. Wow. Do you have a book coming out along with this at all? Uh, yes, I have a book that's being published by Nation Books, but I don't have a published date ready yet because I'm still working on the book. So, Oh, you're still working on it. I was going to say, what, do you think it'll come out at the same time the film does? But No, the film will be out first. So we were talking earlier, so the film's estimate time is what, February of next year? Yes, we hope to have it ready, but that's not when it'll be available to be seen as a documentary on television yet. That's just when we'll have the film completed and ready to enter film festivals. But there'll be information about it when it's completed online and on our webpage. Oh, I'm just getting a chill all over the place so that it can be seen on television. Oh, I mean, that's that's where you're going to get a lot more feedback, I would imagine. Yes, that's the ultimate plan is cut the film for television. I don't have the expectation that it'll be circulating very widely in movie theaters. There might be some kind of a special event or a theater might choose to bring it, but we're not trying to have a national film tour um, theatrical release because I I think that this type of topic and the issue is better on television. Maybe Oprah will pick it up. Maybe. Give her a call and... uh, let her know. Yeah, we know. <laughs> let her know it's coming. Yeah, we know her. Per- <laughs> we know her personally. We'll give her a call. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, but I, are there some I would charitable? Are there some charitable organizations to help workers in China? It's very difficult for workers to get any kind of support or resources because the government is against labor unions and organizations that could spark a labor movement. They already are having enough difficulty just keeping the lid on workers' frustrations. There's a lot of strikes. There's a lot of labor actions. Over 50,000 a year are reported by the government. And, of course, the government underreports as much as it can, so we can only assume that the number is probably twice that in terms of you know workers expressing dissatisfaction because they're just you know, given a raw deal in so many cases over there. But, um, well, you know, I'm just thinking through my head. Uh, if some kind of literature could go out into the country or the schools where the kids are going to school before they go into the city about how dangerous it is and, and to warn them not to go, I don't know if that would help. But 
Well, what happens is there are very um, credible, very reputable labor organizations and human rights groups in Hong Kong where they've recently had all the protests. I don't know if you um, had followed it all. Yes, the big protests in Hong Kong. That's where the seat of democracy in greater China is right now. And I think it was so important that the world learn about what was going on and try to support people there because they just don't want to get swallowed up into mainland China and become a communist territory just like you know the rest of the country. And the only place where workers actually have groups that come across the border and give them money and help them with their compensation claims and visit them in the hospital and put pressure on the different global brands or these groups from Hong Kong. But they have to do it all more or less under the radar because the Chinese government doesn't welcome this kind of activity. Well, I saw from the air the the picture of all the people. I couldn't believe it. There, I mean, it was the streets were just completely full. And I don't know how many how many people were there. How, do you know how many they estimated were there for the protest? I don't remember how many they said had turned out, but one one of the days I remember hearing that there were over half a million. Yeah, I mean, I just I saw it on our Facebook, and it was like from the air view, and it was just unbelievable. So good for them. Heather, Heather, how is this film being funded? The film's been funded almost exclusively from private donations which has been very gratifying. Raising money among people that have supported my work on the labor advocacy and human rights projects that I've done in the past. And I ran a nonprofit for 10 years that I started, and some of those individuals have come forward to make donations, but primarily small donations from individuals. I got one grant through someone who runs a foundation in London, and they came forward with a grant. But otherwise, it's been donations from individuals, and we're hoping that we'll be able to capture some more donations so we can complete the film. We're launching an Indiegogo campaign later this week. So people can um, go online, they can find our page on Indiegogo and contribute $10, $20, whatever they want to get this film completed and out there to the world. Mm. So can you spell that for our listeners? Indiegogo, oh, Indiegogo. I mean, yes, it's like Kickstarter, and it's spelled okay. I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O, Indiegogo.com. Okay, great. great. So do you want to give out your website again and, and the Facebook connection so people can connect with you? Absolutely. Whopaysfilm.org is our website. You can find the trailer on YouTube at Who Pays Film. The Facebook page, which also has links to the trailer, is called Who Pays the Price, the Human Cost of Electronics. And that should be the best way to reach us. Great. We're also on Twitter. I don't know if anyone will um, follow us on Twitter, but please do if if you're interested. Who pays documentary? Who pays film a, on Twitter? Is there a hashtag? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm 
Not sure. Maybe there is a hashtag. Um, oh. I'll have to look into that. That's fun to to have a hashtag in front of it. So yeah. maybe that's what. Yeah. So, in all of your hats that you have to wear, did you have to learn how to uh, edit the film and everything that goes along with that? Or yeah, I've that? been learning. Oh, I have a lot of help. There are dozens of people, as you know from watching movie credits, when a film is over, there's literally hundreds of people involved in making a film. And so I've been working with a lot of different wonderful people, volunteers as well, but having the opportunity to meet and work with professionals in the documentary film space. And it's just been an amazing adventure. You know, it's almost like uh, building a house. When it's done, you go, oh, wow, what's next? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's definitely been um, very surprising all along the way. Has this journey that you've done in in this particular aspect, is it leading to other um, streamers that that you are, are thinking about and bringing forward? Um, uh, what do you mean specifically? Well, you know, when someone does this particular thing, they also have thought about maybe other areas that also need assistance or, you know, other projects. Do you have any other projects that are coming forth? Um, maybe not along this line, but in, in other areas? Definitely. My area of expertise is exploring global supply chains, looking at all the different hidden components that are involved in making products that then end up at the retail level for global brands and global retailers here in the U.S. and in Europe. And I've been doing that type of work for 15 years. So I'll just continue to work on supply chain-related projects. I've been doing a little bit looking at the illegal ivory trade and the uh, threatening of the elephants in Africa because of the poaching of the ivory and the illegal ivory imports um, into China. Because for me, often all the roads lead back to China for my work. China, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I spend I mean, a lot of time over there. That's a big one, the elephants. Uh, go ahead, Tessa. Well, I was thinking, uh, you know, being that you're, like you say, all roads lead to China, is there ever a time that you have actually had um, created a spot where people could come together in uh, in one area and discuss things, um, like a conference or something like that? Or United Nations. Oh, I haven't been working on anything that lofty. I've basically been trying to get the film completed, and then once it's done and there's the full-length film, then there'll be the opportunities to show it at Congress and before different conventions and conferences and show it at the International Labor Organization at the UN in Geneva. And there'll be opportunities like that once the film is done. So far with the 10-minute trailer, there's not a whole lot um, in terms of policy influence that one can do but just basically to get the word out and let people know that a longer piece is coming and that's what we've been focusing on so once the film is done that's my goal right now is 
to complete the project, get the feature-length documentary done, and hopefully the Indiegogo campaign coming up. Uh, people can just go on the Indiegogo page, look under film, and they'll be able to find who pays the price, and they'll be able to go right to our page. Now, free trade has a lot to do with this, doesn't it? <clears throat> Absolutely. You know, the restrictions and the rules that are in place between two countries when they're engaged in trade basically determine, you know, the level of safety and the level of protection of imports for the consumers here in the U.S. And right now, those protections are very weak. We don't even need to have on our food products or our pharmaceuticals if an ingredient or half of the ingredients or the majority of the ingredients were imported from China or India or a country where maybe we might want to think twice about buying it if we have any concerns or if there have been recalls or issues around, you know, the purity and the food security and the, the quality. Right now, consumers have no clue. There have been several cases of people who've died from tainted pharmaceuticals that have been brought in by U.S. pharmaceutical companies. They don't have to label it. People think they're buying these pure you know, drugs that are being produced in laboratories in the U.S., and that's not the case at all. In fact, in many cases, the drug was produced overseas and then brought in and just a label slapped on it with the name of the drug company so that we'll have this peace of mind that we're buying something that's going to be safe. So there's a lot that needs to be done on the labeling laws that has to do with right. the the U.S. importers and what people in Congress um, are willing to commit to in terms of protections for the American public. I wasn't aware of the pharmaceutical aspect, but I know the fish and shrimp, seafood, a lot of it is it comes in from the China or Vietnam, or it's not labeled. That's right. So. If someone's importing it in bulk, then they can repackage it here without any labeling on it. But that's not the case in Europe. Anything that has an imported ingredient has to be labeled all the way through up to the end consumer's purchase. Well, I remember the dog, the, the dog food, and and then the baby food that came from China. I'm, we lost a cat from the the Chinese uh, food, so, I mean, the pet food. So that was not too long ago. Oh, that's terrible. Yes, that's actually still going on. There's a soft recall um, that the FDA finally issued for uh, jerky treats from China uh, that are continuing to poison dogs here, and it's been going on for the last four years. But the uh, soft recall from the FDA just started within the last 12 months. And then there was something with it that was in baby food, too, I, I remember vaguely. Yeah. They had to recall it because something came in from China that was in the baby food. So we are not protected that much. No, we need to, as consumers, I think, use our voice much more actively and put pressure on the government to strengthen the labeling requirements for imports from everywhere in the world. Well, I, with the new social media, I think that's a great way to get it out there. So. Well, and then, you know, it's really uh, it's really wonderful. You have um, a lot of people are on Facebook, and um, 
I I think you know not, there's an area where they can actually message you on your Facebook. So it's you know who pays the price, and there's a question mark after that. So who yes. pays the price, and then the human cost of electronics, and uh, being able to make a connection. Maybe people would like to offer some support or. Um, ideas or, you know, thank you for what you're doing, you know, and they can deliver that to you uh, on the message, uh, which is well, you really probably, wonderful. You probably don't have time for this, but I was thinking about a blog. I don't have time at the moment because I'm trying to complete the film, but the Facebook page basically functions like a blog because I post updates about the film and different workers we've interviewed in different situations and um, if there's a worker that passes away I put the link to the newspaper article that covers it and pictures of the families and also any studies that we've been able to identify that are looking at the risks to consumers from cellular devices and phones we're putting the links on the Facebook page as well so people can see what's being written about it and also how much more information we really need. The EPA has admitted that there's a risk but that they have not commissioned any studies and they are not using any studies in making their assessments about the safety of cell phones to consumers. Well, cell phones, iPads, and um iPhones, etc. That I mean, this is like the entertainment for people, and they probably don't give it another thought unless they are having a problem being ill or they're aware of what you're doing. I know and, I did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is you know, people use these as their entertainment, and uh, not even thinking about this other angle of it. It's just so. Awesome that you have brought this to the forefront. I just, you know, streamlining your efforts one after the other just make an incredible difference for raising the standards within our world. It's just beautiful. Um, you know, we are so thankful to uh, to have you on our show and to be able to to educate people on another level regarding what's taking place. So, um, Heather White, um, you know, again, will you give your website out so people can um, go to it, check it out, make a difference in their world and with their families that they never thought of, you know, um, one one little um, direction beyond the entertainment aspect of it. Yes, thank you. Well, we're going to be sharing. Uh, I, I'm going to uh, hop in onto your Facebook, and you know how you can share. And so, you know, I'm going to be sharing on our Facebook what you yeah. put on yours. So, yeah, so exactly. That's one way people can actually help is just get the word out there. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to have to run now. Okay, thank you so much for being with us. I know how busy you are. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yes, I have another interview right now, so I'm going to have to okay. um, jump on it. get ready. Okay, thank, thank you, you so much Bye-bye. again, Taz and Paula. Thank you. Oh, you're Blessing welcome. You. Bye, Heather. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Hello.